Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my computer punch card using friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the completely irrelevant. In today's episode, we enlist the help of six quantitative methodological scholars who share a wide variety of fertile ground for quant research, which should be useful for students seeking dissertation topics, as well as anyone interested in active methodological areas. Along the way, we also mention Kill Bill, The Waltons with Corpses, (laughs) Taking Away Grandpa's Car Keys, Needing an Avocado, Patrick's Pay Grade, Cleanup Hitters, Unhinged Tweeting, Promiscuous Models, Meerkats, Cantankerously Frequentist, Who Needs Data, and Combining with Jordan for 70 Points. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Have you ever seen the movie Kill Bill? (laughs) It's gotta be, I say it, they gotta be top 10 movies for me. And the they is the operative thing. So there's Kill Bill Volume 1. You may not be able to fight like a samurai, but you can at least die like a samurai. And there's Kill Bill Volume 2. And now I'm going to kill you too. With your own sword, no less. Which in the very immediate future will become my sword. Mm -hmm. They are wonderful movies if you're a Tarantino fan. If you have even a little bit of your soul that respects humanity, they are deeply troubling and violent (laughs) and aggressive. But it is a really wonderful movie, and there's an interesting story behind it because there was only supposed to be one Kill Bill. And evidently, while Tarantino was doing the editing, they were cutting so much stuff that he loved Mm -hmm. that he made volume one and volume two. That woman deserves her revenge. I kind of feel like this episode is the equivalent of Kill Bill Volume 2. (laughs) Because if you recall, we started out to do one episode, and it was going to be, hey, we're starting with the fall semester. It's dissertation season. Mm -hmm. Let's share some ideas that we would like to see in dissertations. And you and I started that, and within a matter of 20 seconds, it devolved into, (laughs) well, what the hell is a dissertation, and about 20 seconds after that, it further devolved into you and me just grousing about things that we hate in dissertations. (laughs) It's our natural state. You didn't make a fool of him. Nope. He managed it all by himself. (laughs) And we'd like to get back to the share ideas for dissertations of what are future directions, fertile ground that people might consider as they're beginning the fall semester of something that you might poke at a little bit for a dissertation. Yeah, absolutely. You know, coming up with an idea for a dissertation, there are a lot of different ways to do it. There are some models where your advisor just goes to like number 14 on the whiteboard and says, hey, (laughs) you want to do this thing I haven't got to yet? Number 42. I've got an order for number 42. Oh, that's me. That's right. Oh, latent curve models. Cool. What's that? Um, (laughs) But, you know, the model we prefer is that the student has been involved in research for a long time and works towards some topic that they're extremely motivated to get into. But still, sometimes you can have a hard time. And our field is vast. There's so much cool stuff going on. 
So we left off at the end of last week by reminding listeners of what our typical approach is in a situation like this, which is if we ever begin to address something difficult, we subcon it out. It's easy. (laughs) You get people way smarter than us, maybe a little bit younger. And so we've done exactly... Maybe, yes. <laughs> it would be hard to get people older. I don't know. I still got Gauss and Markov. <laughs> the kids are at college, and so I have empty bedrooms. What a perfect place to put a corpse. Good night, Gauss. Good night, Markov. <laughs> it's like the Waltons, but with corpses. Good night, everybody. Good night, Mama. Good night, everyone. Good night, Mama. Good night, Daddy. Good night, children. Good night, Daddy. Good night, Elizabeth. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Jim Bob. Good night, John Boy. Good night, Markov. (laughs) Okay, anyway, we have call-ins from half a dozen people who are leaders in the field and what they do. We're going to play them. We're going to comment on them. But before we get to that, Greg and I are in the field, and we have ideas for where the field is now and what the future is. Mm -hmm. And so what we're going to do today is Greg and I are going to share some of our directions for future research and ideas that we have. And then we're going to turn to Collins and see what they suggest drawing from their own area of expertise. So if you don't mind, Greg, I will start. One of the most exciting future directions that I envision for the field is thinking about the deleterious effects of listwise deletion. I would love Dad. to see a project Dad, where we. Dad, where are you? Tate? Dad? Hey, Patrick. Hey, dude. Hey, Dad, where are the car keys? I'm in the middle of recording here. Can we just do this later? Where are the keys? They're hanging up where they always are. Okay, thanks. By the way, Patrick, that missing data listwise deletion thing I heard you talking about through the door? Ruben figured that out in 1972. Journal of the Royal Statistical Society. Oh, uh, all right. How about this one? So in SEM, we know that the difference between the model chi-square and the degrees of freedom is a sample estimate of the non-centrality parameter. What if we were to use this as a measure of the RMSEA, Steiger and Lind, 1980. Okay. Uh, moving beyond pre-post designs to treat time continuously so that... Meredith and TSAC, Psychometrica 1990. Um, effects of non-normality in, in normal theory maximum likelihood of confirmatory factor models... Oh my god, Curran, West, and Finch, Psych Methods 1996. Oh, um... Then you guys have any, uh, younger colleagues waiting to help out? <laughs> I think what he's trying to say is, Grandpa, it's time to hand over the car keys. <laughs> wow. Exactly. I'm out. It's okay. It's okay. Is it? I sometimes just need an avocado and you're taking my car. All right. So as Patrick alluded to, we have half a dozen folks who range from early career to mid-career, I would say. Well, relative to us, they're like brand new. (laughs) Relative to us. But I'll tell you, to me, that's really, really exciting. On the one hand, people who have been doing this for a long time generally have a really good perspective on the field and how things fit together. On the other hand, some emerging scholars and mid-career scholars are really in the thick of shaping things that are very, very exciting. And so we have six folks that have been kind enough to contribute. And what I thought we would do is what we've done before and just go through each of them and see what they have to say. Okay. So who's up first? Our friend, Micah Remtula. I'll let her go ahead and introduce herself. This is Micah Remtula. I'm a quantitative psychologist at UC Davis. I work in the areas of structural equation modeling and network modeling. In particular, I spend a lot of time thinking about measurement models for psychological constructs. 
So take a construct like school readiness. Is it right to think of it as a latent variable that underlies children's competence on a bunch of dimensions? Maybe it's a network of skills that are mutually reinforcing, or maybe it's just a bunch of different things that we add up and give a name to. Each of these ways of conceiving of it imply different statistical models, and those statistical models will in turn lead to potentially really different answers to scientific questions about things like the impacts of school readiness. Okay, I'm going to pitch three ideas that I think are interesting enough to study for a few years without getting bored. All of these ideas are in the area that's come to be called network psychometrics. The idea is that, okay, let's take a construct like neuroticism. Rather than neuroticism being some singular unidimensional trait that makes people give similar answers to all the items on a neuroticism questionnaire, it's rather that all the items on a neuroticism questionnaire get at specific behaviors and attitudes that are mutually reinforcing. And neuroticism is what we call the trait that emerges from that network of interactions. It's an intriguing idea, and it's one that's resonated deeply with a lot of researchers studying psychological topics from psychopathology to personality to intelligence to political ideology. And in the 15 or so years that methodologists have been working in this area, there have been a huge number of developments and advances, as well as some missteps and corrections and controversy to try to make statistical models that align with what researchers want to learn from their data. To me, the really fertile ground here right now is in thinking about how to put measurement theory back into network models. So even though we call it network psychometrics, and psychometrics implies measurement, it's not clear what the relation is between the values in the data spreadsheet and the constructs we're trying to study. So to me, these models kind of mix up measurement relations with substantive relations, making it hard to assess the pure measurement part of the model. Okay, so three topics. One is measurement invariance. If neuroticism is a network, does it make any sense to ask if the survey questions have the same measurement properties across people, or across groups, or across time? If it makes sense to ask this question, is it possible to answer it? What kind of data and models would we need to do that? Topic two is reliability. How do you know if an item is a reliable measure of some construct when that construct is conceived of as a network? What about a scale? Does it make sense to talk about scale reliability for networks? Again, if the question makes sense and it's important, then what kind of data and models would we need to measure this? If the question doesn't make sense or it's not important, is there something else that corresponds to the importance of reliability under like a classical test theory or a latent variable modeling framework that would be important to study instead in the realm of networks? Topic three is about validity. There are lots of ways you can conceptualize the validity of a network model. One way would be to say that a valid network model contains an appropriate set of variables or nodes. A concern that comes up a lot in network modeling is that because of the way that we typically model network connections, they can be really sensitive to both missing variables that are unmeasured and redundant variables. So it would be great to have some kind of set of diagnostics to figure out whether any given network model is robust to the set of nodes in it, and if not, how to find the best set. Is there any way of knowing? And again, is this a statistical modeling question or is it a substantive question? Is there a way that statistics can inform the answer to it? One of the things I really like about what Micah is talking about is if you think about the arc of the development of what we might just generically call a construct, right? There is this latent variable thing. We have just been working to death since like <laughs> 1904. And at a certain point in history, people started to question whether or not that's appropriate for a lot of constructs. And some of the constructs, rather than being causal in their nature, sometimes we think of them as more emergent, more formative in the sense that the variables come together to define a particular construct. 
construct. And that kind of challenged us, right? Some people would try to force the latent variable model onto things where the arrows really went the other way between the factor and the variables, specifically from the variables to what we might loosely call the factor. This is taking it a step further and saying, maybe what's going on is really just some interplay among the variables themselves, and that that constitutes some kind of system. And what exactly is a construct? The construct is this particular system. And I love this because it's really forcing us to understand and have theories about the relations among the variables. In last week's episode, we put the little insert from the Will Woods song, It's Just Something People Do. It's just something people do. And I feel like that captures 50 years of measurement. Mm -hmm. We have a multiple indicator latent factor. It's just something people do. So I love this notion of often using the very same data, but taking a radically different approach in how we conceptualize that as networks. And I really, really like thinking about concepts from psychometrics in the network approach. Mm -hmm. So a principled approach to measurement and variance. Obviously, you can't apply a Meredith kind of structure on it, but is there a version of that you could? She talked about reliability. She talked about validity. These are fundamental concepts in psychometrics, and merging those two, I think, is a really exciting area of research. Heck, I don't even know what reliability means in this context. So there's so many exciting things to dig into, and I'm glad people like Micah are helping others to think about those ideas. It's great stuff. All right, who's up next? Oh, we should have done those walk-up songs. Batting second <laughs> for Quantitude is... <laughs> Who do you got? I got Matt Valente, and I'll let Matt introduce himself. My name is Matthew Valente. I'm an assistant professor of epidemiology and biostatistics in the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida in Tampa, Florida. My primary area of research is methods for causal mediation analysis. Whereas in traditional mediation analysis, mediation effects are defined using linear structural equation models, in causal mediation analysis, mediation effect definitions are non-parametric. This means that we do not require linear or additive statistical modeling assumptions to identify and estimate mediation effects. This makes it particularly useful when developing mediation methods for various experimental designs and statistical models. Broadly speaking, my work focuses on the development and application of causal mediation analysis methods for single mediator models, multiple mediator models, moderated mediation, and longitudinal mediation. In particular, my research focuses on the development of causal mediation methods for N of 1 personalized interventions, but also for multiple participant or group-based randomized interventions. With respect to personalized interventions, we're reaching a point where it's becoming increasingly more feasible to collect an adequate amount of repeated measures data on individuals while implementing interventions. Single-case experimental designs provide a rigorous manner to test intervention effects in personalized interventions for populations that may not be adequately studied with large sample interventions. There are many types of single-case experimental designs for which causal mediation analysis has yet to be developed and applied. With respect to multiple participant randomized interventions, there is a lot of important work to be done to merge the longitudinal models commonly used in the social sciences, for example, cross-legged panel models and latent growth curve models, with the emerging methodology from causal mediation analysis. Ultimately, I think that dissertation-worthy work can be done on the development of methods that help inform how interventions achieve and maintain their effects over time, and for whom interventions do or do not work. So did he lay out ideas for dissertations or for 25-year careers in quantitative methodology? <laughs> right. I am really intrigued with the recent developments in causal mediation and not only laying down first principles, which is how does 
a standard passive observational mediation relate to what would be called a causal mediation, bringing in counterfactuals, some of Dave McKinnon's stuff where he's talked about where you can have randomization to a treatment condition, but you don't have randomization to the mediator. And so how do you factor that into your models? But what Matt's saying that I really love is starting to bring in that N of one personalized interventions. Yep. And what's so funny is I remember back in the day when I was doing my clinical training of case studies and aggregating over case studies, but we didn't have the mechanics to do it. It was almost like this collection of individual stories that you would try to extract some theme out of. But now we have an analytic statistical framework to formalize that, to bring in a collection of N of 1 data sets and then embed them within this causal mediation question. I love that. And the big one that I respond to just because it's near and dear to my own heart is bringing in the longitudinal aspect. Mm -hmm. Because in some very real way, longitudinal analysis and mediation analysis have developed, I feel like, mostly in parallel fashion is there have been some amazing advances in mediation but they have not kind of crossed the streams of what we know about longitudinal modeling, about temporal precedence, about disaggregating within person and between person effects. And to shine your flashlight in the dark room on how do we combine these two to allow us to do what we want to do, I think is a very exciting area of work. Yeah, I agree. And one of the tensions sometimes that quantitative methodologists feel, at least historically, with regard to N of 1 studies is that you're like, well, what about generalizability? What about trying to understand things at a population level? And you have to think to yourself that, well, sometimes the person is the population. I want to understand this individual completely. And so we have the capabilities now as our methods are advancing along causal mediation fronts, but also along the dynamic longitudinal modeling fronts to be able to get a really good understanding of what's going on for an individual. And that's really important when you're trying to tailor particular treatments that might be going on or understand developmental trajectories. I think there's just so much rich potential here. So I love all of this stuff. And there is an Annie's flower shop with laser cannon component <laughs> to it. Greg and I had an episode last season of building the model you want. Yeah. But there are a couple of things in reacting to what you just said is one, it really does drop us back in this very traditional ideographic versus nomothetic kind of perspective on science. And ideographic is idiot, right? Always remember that is you don't need one more idiot. <laughs> ideographic is the focus on the individual. Nomothetic, no more. I don't want any more people. That's like the the population. That's the level of your understanding, isn't it? Hey, got me tenured at a state university. <laughs> We're really talking about where do we fall on that continuum, but I've done some work over the years in integrative data analysis where we combine multiple independent data sets, mm -hmm. but a fascinating parallel line of work has been applying those kinds of principles, but to what's called individual participant data. And so instead of having a contributing study, you have an individual's time series, right? and some people have 
approached it from a meta-analytic standpoint, but you also then can fold in these integrative data analysis perspectives where you can do a very similar kind of thing. So I think this is super exciting. And that notion of putting the laser cannon on the flower shop (laughs) where you have all the amazing ideographic insights of N of one personalized interventions that you then try to draw generalized conclusions from, I think is a really exciting area. Totally agree. Thank you, Matt. That was really cool. Yep. All right. Next Next up. up. We have Chang Huang from the University of Washington. Hi, my name is Chen Wang, and I'm a professor of measurement and statistics in the College of Education at the University of Washington. My research started in the field of educational and psychological measurement centered around item response theory, and in recent years gradually pivoted to the emerging intersection between measurement and data science. The goal of this gradual transition is to leverage machine learning-based psychometric tools to fulfill two purposes. On one hand, to develop assessments that are reliable and secure, fair, inclusive, and provide interpretable diagnostic feedback. And on the other hand, to innovate new ways to handle big data when it comes to measure and model psychological phenomena. In my view, there are several fertile areas of research. For instance, think about what psychometricians can contribute at the crossroad of the national emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the heavy influence of artificial intelligence, AI, on everyday life. One research topic that I find interesting is in the realm of educational measurement. How can we effectively detect bias in learning tasks produced by generative AI so that AI can be applied in classrooms in an equitable and responsible manner? We can draw on decades of research in algorithmic fairness in AI and make connections with long-standing research in measurement invariance and differential item functioning to develop innovative tools that capitalize on latent variable models, but also applicable to the new application scenario. That is, generative AI will generate large number of items quickly, so the method will need to handle big pool of items, potentially severe data sparsity, as not everybody will answer every item, and make the detection on the fly because items can be literally generated continuously. Another research direction is around high-dimensional IRT models. The psychological construct we try to measure nowadays are becoming increasingly complex, such as 21st century skills like collaborative problem solving. Estimating high-dimensional IRT models suffer from the so-called curse of dimensionality. Instead, we may borrow ideas from computer science, such as variational methods that provide huge computational advantage. In addition, the model itself needs to be further expanded to exploit rich data collected from digital platforms such as the process data. Eventually, I think the advanced psychometric models and fast computing algorithms will provide essential infrastructure for creating personalized assessment and learning tools at scale. Okay, I find this simultaneously incredibly exciting and incredibly scary. If you think about the way you and I were exposed to the topic of differential item functioning or bias, as it used to be called, we imagine administering the same items, we'll call them test items, to lots of different people. And then we can look to see whether or not the characteristics of those test items might differ across usually known groups, although it's possible to do it across latent groups as well. That involves using the exact same items for all the different individuals. 
Now enter something called automatic item generation. In automatic item generation, test items are written not as individual items, but more as templates. And it could be something as simple as we have a math item that says Patrick has four apples, Greg has six apples, how many apples do they have together, but that the names Patrick and Greg are changed for other names, the numbers of apples the people have are changed and can be chosen from some predefined set. And so you automatically let the computer generate different items for different individuals. The idea of bias is still very, very relevant. And you start to get a little bit nervous that, oh, but when I use the name Annie and I use the name Quinn in there, the item starts to perform a little bit differently. Or when I have numbers of apples that add up to more than 10 rather than less than 10, the behavior of the item is a little bit different. So you start to get a little bit nervous, but if you administer these different combinations of things to enough people, you start to be able to figure out the properties and understand issues of differential item functioning. Okay, now we take automatic item generation and just put it on steroids, drugs, I don't care what you want to call it. And we just kind of abdicate the item construction to more generative AI. And there might be differences in terms of the little elements of the items. There might be differences in items altogether. Imagine a world where everybody gets a unique test item. How the heck do I figure out, is that item biased when only one person got it? So this is a fascinating world where we are harnessing the power of AI to be able to do what might in the end be more realistic assessment and ultimately tailored assessment to the individuals. But it also creates these particular problems where I don't know if an item is biased across individuals because only one person got it. So there's so much work to be done here. It's exciting, as I said, but also incredibly scary. Yes. <laughs> this is so far above my pay grade. I'm so excited about what she said and talking about taking what we know about measurement and data science and AI. It's hard for me to even get my head around what it means conceptually to generate items continuously. Yeah. And as you just said, each person might get one item that no one else shares. Yeah. And in some way, I want to tap out and say, nope. Current out. <laughs> that's not what we do in psychometrics. <laughs> and yet again, it's just something people do. <laughs> But what I like, though, and it overlaps a bit with what Micah was talking about, is you've got this shiny new thing that you took out of the box of AI and data science kind of perspectives. But, you know, people like Spearman and Chromebach and Thurstone laid out some pretty important concepts in validity and reliability and replicability. And to bring those concepts into this shiny new thing that we're doing, I think is really important. I would love to see how some of those things come out. Yeah, even if we can't understand them. <clears throat> anyway, <laughs> now in baseball, number four is the cleanup hitter. That's where the first three, assumedly at least one got on base, and the fourth is going to bring them home. So who is our cleanup hitter? It is a friend of the podcast, Wes Bonifay. Is he the one that like posted a hundred <laughs> submissions on Twitter? Wes has way too much free time. <laughs> 
So folks, if you follow on Twitter, we did some gags over the summer and Wes, I mean, he submitted dozens. I think it was 50 band names that were all statistical puns. He just was going on and on and on. Well, and they were funny. They were really good. All right, here we go. Hey everyone, this is Wes Bonifay. You may know me from an admittedly unhinged number of methodological puns on Twitter, but I'm also an associate professor in the Statistics, Measurement, and Evaluation in Education program at the University of Missouri. In my opinion, the most wide open area for impactful research in quantitative methodology concerns information theory. In a landmark paper published in 1948, Claude Shannon introduced efficient methods of encoding, transmitting, receiving, and then decoding messages, text, numbers, symbols, and so on. You should check out Quantitude Season 3, Episode 26, for some frequently interrupted explanations of the fundamentals of information theory. Shannon's groundbreaking paper was titled, A Mathematical Theory of Communication, but his ideas were soon extended to other disciplines. Information theory has since played a significant role in advancing many research areas, genetics, computer science, game theory, chemistry, quantum physics, collective behaviors, artificial intelligence, to name just a few. But as far as I can tell, it seems that psychology, education, and the social sciences have been slower to adopt information theory, which makes it fertile soil for dissertation-level research. Let me narrow in briefly on two potential topic areas. First, information theory offers a unique perspective on statistical model evaluation through the Normalized Maximum Likelihood, or NML. This is a very dense concept, so I will oversimplify. Rather than focusing on a model's goodness of fit to the observed data, NML evaluates how well the model fits the observed data relative to how well it would fit any given data. This approach can yield unique and valuable insights into model complexity and model generalizability. My lab has conducted some work in this information-theoretic approach to statistical model evaluation, but there are still many related issues that need to be studied. The second topic comes from Edwin Jaynes, whose principle of maximum entropy was built upon the information-theoretic foundations laid by Claude Shannon. Entropy here means a lack of information, and Jaynes proposed that we can better understand our data by comparing it to the least informative distribution possible. In quantitative psychology, we encounter this technique in methods like parallel analysis and cluster analysis, in comparative fit indices and structural equation modeling, and many others. But my suspicion is that a deep dive into the principle of maximum entropy would yield novel approaches to statistical inference, to data analysis, and modeling in quantitative research. Good luck. So remind me, wasn't our entire information theory episode chosen because you wanted to drop it on April 11th because <laughs> it was 411? That was the entire motivation. Yes, you are correct. <laughs> all right. So I'll let you respond to Wes's suggestions. All right. Well, first of all, I think we have to concede that maybe Wes knows a couple of things besides how to make really good quantitative puns. <laughs> So one of the problems that fields have is that they are often incredibly isolated and they tend to create their own solutions to problems, but without looking over the fence at how other people think about things. So you see development of a lot of things going on concurrently or pretty close to concurrently, but all in service of the exact same problem. One thing I really like about Wes is that he tries to poke his head up and look over the fences around our field. And I've talked to Wes many times. He is deep in this stuff, trying to understand it from a whole lot of perspectives. And let me just give you one example of a problem to think about. What we do when we assess model fit is we ask, how well does this model fit the data that we have? And so we choose the parameters that best replicate what we have. And then we ask, did we do a good job? 
Well, there are some models that have no choice but to do a good job, right? As models become increasingly saturated, for example, they're going to fit damn near any data that you have because they're so flexible. And I don't mean flexible in a good way. They're so parameterized that they can accommodate just about any data. Well, imagine that there is this space with all possible sets of data that you could have. And I take my model and I go out and I ask, how well does my model fit all possible sets of data? If you have a model that fits only one little corner of the universe and it also fits my data, I am much more impressed by that model because that model is not is not promiscuous, right? <laughs> but it can't just hook up with anything. Hey, easy now. Let's not be judgmental here. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> And so some of the stuff that Wes is trying to get into has to do with understanding the space of potential data that we could have and how flexible a model might be or inflexible a model might be and what the implications are for how we view its fit to our particular data. And I think it's a really exciting thing that he's digging into. I love that he's looking over the fence and I think he's going to find a way to bring some of that into our world. All I could picture was a meerkat where they (laughs) stand and look. Okay, everybody, you couldn't see that. But Greg did an uncanny meerkat. (laughs) That was a little freaky. Okay, but anyway, I really do think that's an exciting area in the model evaluation and thinking about potential model fit. So I don't have the sights at my fingertips, but Chris Preacher. Preacher, 2006. Preacher, Cyan McCallum, 2007. Uh, okay. Thank you. So those are the preacher citations. Shouldn't he be studying for his SAT? I don't know. What's what's wrong with that kid? Can't he go play video games? There's something wrong with that kid. So I love that. I think this is a wonderful direction to go to. Agreed. All right. We are four sixths of the way through. Who's number five? All right. So for guest number five, we're heading back out to the West Coast where we have Sarah Dupoli. This is Sarah DiPoli from the University of California, Merced. I am currently the chair of the Psychological Sciences Department, but I am in the Quantitative Methods, Measurement, and Statistics program. I primarily work on methodological topics within Bayesian estimation and latent variable or mixture models. Given recent computational advancements, there's been an explosion of research conducted within Bayesian structural equation modeling. There are many aspects to this part of the field that are in need of further development and exploration, but there are some that I see being particularly important to contribute to. In my mind, I sort of break these areas needing research into three main categories. First, there is a pre-modeling phase where there are many avenues for research needed. Assessments for data prior agreement should be extended, as well as methods for extracting informative priors for various model parameters especially covariance matrices, since these can be quite tricky. There's ample room here for software development focused on these pre-estimation issues of prior extraction, prior visualization, and automating the data prior agreement assessment process. The next category moves into estimation. Bayesian estimation algorithms can be inefficient, especially with larger models containing many latent variables, a multi-level structure, mixture component, or a complex covariance structure. More efficient algorithms aimed toward mitigating some of these issues that are common within Bayesian SEM would be great. Finally, I have really loved seeing some of the extensions within the context of model fit and model assessment for Bayesian modeling. 
The issue I see, though, is that some of these indices do not do well to accurately detect model misspecification. We need model fit and model comparison tools that can detect specification errors in the measurement and structural parts of the model, especially since the use of Bayesian methods is on the rise in the applied SEM literature. A couple of years ago, we talked to Roy Levy about Bayesian, Mm -hmm. and I played straight man in there about being anti-Bayesian or cantankerously frequentist, Mm -hmm. but that was part of the gag. I've never been anti-Bayesian, and I think that this is a really important area that has a lot of promise. What I really like of Sarah raising are a number of the concerns that I sometimes have. The big one for me is what I see is the lack of attention paid to the priors and the identification of the priors Mm -hmm. in a lot of the things that it's being used for right now. And paraphrasing Roy is at one point, he said something like, the only thing worse than not using Bayesian is using Bayesian with defaults. And I think what a lot of people are using right now is, oh, I can do an SEM using Bayes and I'm going to do that. And often my first two questions are, what is Bayesian offering you? And what are the downstream implications of the defaults that you're using on these priors? I reviewed a paper a while ago, and they had very complicated latent curve models with a Bayesian estimation that they were advocating you could go as low as 20 observations. And you could, but the priors were darn near point masses right? <laughs> where you were functionally giving the program the solution. Who needs the data? <laughs> yeah. And then the other thing that she raised, and again, I'm very excited about, and it overlaps with things that Matt and Micah raised, but it's model fit, model evaluation. Mm -hmm. None of us who work deeply in SEM have ever been happy, fully happy, with how SEMs are evaluated from a frequentist perspective. And the opportunity to revisit that from a Bayesian perspective is hugely exciting. And that alone, I would love to see a dissertation on a really thorough evaluation of a Bayesian approach to evaluating model fit and replicability. Yeah. And there were a couple of things that hit home for me as well. One is also, as you said, the priors, but specifically the extent to which the data that you have in hand can inform your choice of priors. That's right. It's like, wait, are you cheating? Can I look at my data? Is it prior (laughs) if I'm picking it after? But, you know, there is a potential for productive interplay between what you have in your hand and then choosing a prior. And I think understanding that in the context of modeling is very important and a lot of room for work to be done. I also think that we, I mean, it's a bit hyperbolic to say we suck at fit. I mean, the fit indices that we have for our models are thoughtful and they're looking at our fit from different perspectives. But as literature has shown for the last 20 plus years, there can't be a one size fits all assessment. And looking at your model from lots of different perspectives is a bit better than looking at it from any one perspective. But even that is a very global perspective. And one of the things that she mentioned had to do with specification errors, you know, looking for places where your model is weak. Specification errors are really about local misfit. And one of the things I think we're not very good at in modeling, whether it's in a frequentist perspective or in a Bayesian perspective, is understanding fit at a more local level. And I would love to see if some of the Bayesian horsepower can be harnessed to be able to look at fit, not just globally, but also locally. So a lot of cool stuff going on. 
You are completely right that these are clever, creative, they're theoretically motivated, they're analytically supported, but the way the majority of them are used in practice are an up-and-down vote on one model based on mostly subjective cutoffs. And you hit a really nice point, and one that Sarah alluded to, our current method is based on overall fit, Mm -hmm. when really we should be much more interested in local fit, that there are parts of our model that are doing a very good job, there are parts of our model that are doing a less good job. So I do think that is a particularly exciting aspect of what Sarah is talking about. Totally agree. All right. We are on number six, who I have to say is a buddy of mine. He came through the Carolina system, and he is both one of the smartest guys and sweetest guys you will ever meet. This is Zach Fisher. So let's hear what Zach has to say. Hi, everyone. My name is Zach Fisher, and I'm an assistant professor in the Quantitative Developmental Systems Group at Penn State University. My research draws on many of kind of the meat and potato themes of quantitative psychology and psychometrics, so measurement, multivariate modeling. But right now, my time is really spent on this problem of modeling time series with qualitatively different dependent structures or dynamics underlying the observed data. Part of the difficulty lies in the fact that we often don't know in advance how similar a given process or even some component of that process is across different individuals. Another difficulty lies in the construction of the problem itself. So with many time points, variables, and people all having to be analyzed simultaneously, one is pretty quickly dealing with just too much data. So my work also draws heavily on developments in optimization and statistical computing. When Patrick and Greg strong-armed me into doing this, my first thought was a quote from John Nesselrode who said, The place of the individual in a science of behavior aspiring to establish lawful relationships is somewhat ambiguous. And I think this quote really highlights a core tension in our field. Many of the statistical modeling approaches we employ really do carry strong assumptions about how individuals can differ from one another. And although this is not new, I think the ubiquity of intensively collected repeated measures data in our research is going to increasingly force us to confront how heterogeneity is addressed in our theories and models. So personally, I'm excited by research aimed at relaxing the homogeneity assumptions that are baked into many of the common approaches to addressing heterogeneity in our field, at least in their standard forms, such as statistical adjustment, multi-level modeling, and so on. And I'm most excited by the development of methods that, when necessary, allow for the pattern of causal transmission to differ across individuals. Thanks. A couple reactions to Zach's stuff. First of all, something that he said that ties to a theme that has come up in a number of other things. And I'm going to get at it with a silly little example. I'm going to tell you that Tate and I, on average, in any given week, run about 25 miles. Now, the truth is that I run zero miles, and Tate currently in cross-country is running about 50 miles a week. What that means, though, is to say that on average we run 25 miles a week represents neither of us, not even close. When we start looking at longitudinal trajectories and we're trying to understand what's going on, we gravitate toward whatever that average trajectory is. And yes, we know there are individual differences around that, but we still think about that average trajectory as being somewhat meaningful. But in fact, it might be the equivalent of Tate and I running on average 25 miles a week. It may apply to absolutely nobody. 
So averages often are incredibly misleading, and it's not just the variability that's interesting, but it's what individuals are doing. And so I like one of the themes of what Zach had to say, along with things that came up in some of the things that other people had to say about trying to understand things more at the individual level, or at least understanding how those characteristics vary as a function of other things, right? It comes back to the, it depends. I love your example with Tate running. One that I always think about is, I'm not a big basketball fan, but I remember this from years ago when Michael Jordan was playing. There was a game he scored 69 points. The Chicago Bulls, 117. The Cleveland Cavaliers, 113. As Michael Jordan scores 69. And there was a rookie who made one free throw in the game. (laughs) And in the after game interview, the rookie deadpan said he will forever remember this as the night that he and Jordan combined for 70 points. (laughs) And he got a huge laugh and it was so wonderful. But you're exactly right. This is continuing this theme of heterogeneity, of individual variability, of moderation. Almost all of our contributors have in some way or another raised that. And I love that this is increasingly becoming a theme as where we're going in the future of quantitative methods. But what I'm particularly intrigued with Zach's work is really getting into the dynamics. Mm -hmm. So he worked a lot with Ken Bolin and with Katie Gates here at Carolina and looking at time series analysis and then trying to extract generalizations from time series. And I love how he's starting with the traditional assumptions about, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but kind of assumptions about how an individual behaves, just raising questions about that. And where he left off is that cause differing over individuals. And we want to know, does anxiety increase the probability you're going to drink alcohol? And if you drink alcohol, does that increase the probability you're going to be more anxious the next day? And we want to know for a typical adolescent. Mm -hmm. But I'm sometimes just awash in this notion that every kid is different. Every kid has a different family. Every kid has a different genetic makeup, right? How do we swim in that ocean of individual variability where we're trying to draw this signal from noise? And I think that's the core of Zach's work. And he didn't raise it in the clip, and I only know it because I know Zach outside of this setting, but he's one of the best computational statisticians who I know. Hmm. He is an elite programmer, and his ability then to take these novel developments in statistics and quantitative methods and to program them and to disseminate them is a huge component of his contributions to the field. And as I noted before, he's an insanely nice guy. All of these people are very, very nice people. In fact, our field really is full of people who are incredibly nice. And I think this episode really embodies that. You know, when I was starting off as a faculty member, and probably you as well, I felt like I was going into a world that was territorial and competitive and kind of selfish, like people didn't want to share ideas with each other. In fact, if you didn't have solo work that you were doing on your CV, then that could be a red flag for your future, right? Yeah. But I think the world that we work in now is a lot more collaborative, a lot more willing to share. We just reached out to six people and said, hey, would you be willing to take some of the coolest ideas that you have and throw them out? 
out there for other scholars to think about and maybe work on. And every single one of them without hesitation said, absolutely, I'd be happy to do that. So, you know, this whole episode, we've been just giving away great ideas for people to engage in quantitative methods dissertations. And if it's not in any of these six particular areas, it's probably going to have something to do with the themes that have emerged here, whether it's things like the role of the individual, whether it's examining the individual or moderating kinds of forces that make individuals differ as part of some larger function, larger pattern of things. It could be issues of multidimensionality, which was lurking in a lot of things that were here. So even if it doesn't align with these things exactly, there are a lot of themes that may help you to think about your area and some of the really cool problems that are there. I think that's an incredibly important point is even if you're working in an area that was not addressed at all in here, there's individual variability, moderation, mediation, causal inference, measurement, bringing traditional theory into novel ways, taking traditional methods and expanding them as ensconced in new ways of thinking about the problems. And so from a thematic level, a lot of these things could be applied in your own neck of the woods. Yep. But I still would love to see a dissertation on the deleterious effects of listwise dilution. <laughs> I realize Tate thinks that's a little outdated, but... Coding it up using punch cards? <laughs> I have some in my desk drawer if anybody wants to borrow them. I know you do. <laughs> and by the way, next time Tate is giving me crap about being somewhat dated, wasn't he supposed to write a new theme song? And this is episode four? He was. You know what? As a matter of fact, hey, Tate, get your ass in here. <laughs> Tate! Tate, come here. Yeah? <laughs> what? What's up? Dude, do you have the song for us? I actually have been working on it. In fact, I wrote a whole new part to add in for another instrument, but I'm having a problem because I went through everyone I knew, and it turns out I don't know a single good trumpet player. <laughs> <laughs> Sick burn! So, Patrick, do you think you could maybe ask your friend Sean to help me out? <laughs> okay, yeah, whatever, Tate. Thanks, everybody. We will see you next week. Take care. Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to Quantitude on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or the 183 other platforms whose AI bots email us weekly, and please leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter X, we are at Quantitude Pod, and check out our webpage at quantitudepod.org for searchable archives, playlists, show notes, a syllabus that organizes episodes under class topics, and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get a plethora of Quantitude-themed merch that offer a healthy alternative for trick-or-treaters at redbubble.com, where all proceeds from non-bootleg authorized products go to donors choose to support low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude, the logical choice to serve as the next Speaker of the U.S. House of Representatives. Quantitude has been brought to you by Verizon Wireless. Did this week's episode yet again make you throw your phone across the room? Verizon's new Quantitude Protection Plan provides full coverage for repair or even replacement of your phone related to any Quantitude-induced damage. The policy fully renews every seven days. By Fat Bear Week. We actually don't have a gag here. We just both really like Fat Bear Week. Go Otis! And by President Biden's Dog Commander, who encourages academic institutions to get their own German Shepherd who is allowed to wander the building freely and randomly bite anyone they want. Just watch faculty productivity soar. This is most definitely not NPR.